Today on Hardwired. James and Jude were the half-brothers of Jesus. Can you imagine that? They grew up watching Jesus grow up, watching him work with wood. When they would get spanked and get in trouble, they had to have said to themselves eventually, how come he's never in trouble? I mean, did you ever think about that? There had to be some sibling rivalry because they did not, we're about to see, didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. You are listening to Hardwired with Pastor Jeff Wickwire. Thanks for allowing us to share this time with you. It's our favorite time of the day where we get to hang out together and hear about how the truth of God's Word can make a huge difference as it's hardwired into your life, your relationships, and your future. You may be stuck in traffic or maybe even stuck in life. Either way, today's message is going to help you get on the right track as you learn how much God loves you right where you are. And if for any reason you have to break away before the end of the program, you can always catch it at our website, hardwired.org. That's hardwired.org. So let's go ahead and get right into today's message. Here's Pastor Jeff to set it up for us. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Hardwired. Thank you for joining us. You know, one of my favorite books in the New Testament is the little book of Jude, one chapter long, but it's so full of prophetic fire of timely warnings for our day and culture and great, great teaching and assurance of our salvation to come. I love this little book and I'm so excited to share it with you today. So let's go right to today's message straight out of the book of Jude. And I believe it's gonna bless you. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's go. Let's, uh, I'm gonna begin just by giving you an introduction to the book. I want you to know the Bible. I want you to understand where these letters came from that are very old, a couple of uh, thousand years old, and uh, yet uh, they are the inspired Word of God. Let's remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all scripture is given by Theonoustos, the breathing out of God. God spoke and gave us these words. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and all Scripture is profitable. Even Leviticus, and even the begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, somehow, somewhere, that's profitable. So tonight, let's just begin and learn about Jude. Amen? Everybody say, hey, Jude. There we go. According to the testimony of the book itself, Jude was written by... Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So since James was one of the brothers of Jesus, Jude was likewise one of his brothers, or we would say half-brothers, because Jesus did not have Joseph as a father. Jesus' father was God. But James and Jude were the half-brothers of Jesus. Can you imagine that? They grew up watching Jesus grow up, watching him work with wood. When they would get spanked and get in trouble, they had to have said to themselves eventually, how come he's never in trouble? <laughs> I mean, did you ever think about that? There had to be some sibling rivalry because they did not, we're about to see, didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. So here was Jesus never sinning. So he had to be the goody two-shoes of the family, you know? He had to be. So let's, let's read what it says in Matthew 13, 55. It identifies Jude. It says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, 
and who? Judas, which is, and Jude is for short. And of course, they did away with Judas after Iscariot because of the um, stigma that went along with that name. But Judas was Jude. Six other Judes or Judases are found in the New Testament, but the writer of Jude is not to be confused with any of them. Now, Jude was not an apostle, which is why the title of apostle found in other epistles is not used in the book of Jude. He doesn't refer to himself as an apostle, yet he wrote one of the inspired letters. Virtually nothing is known about the life of Jude. He's really kind of a mystery, y'all. He no doubt, along with his other siblings, believed on the deity of Jesus only after the resurrection. Unlike 1 John and James and others, the place of Jude's composition, that is where he was geographically, and his destination, who he was sending it to, they're both unknown. We don't know where he was when he wrote it, and we don't know who he was sending it to. But God knew. Amen? It was likely written somewhere around 75 A.D., which is a decade or so after John penned 1 John, and it's 15 years or so before the book of Revelation. You know that little book that was kind of controversial for a while there, and now it's all faded away? I'm just kidding. Y'all have got to learn to smile a little bit. You think I mean that? You're looking at me like, okay, look now. Let's just read. As was 1 John that we just totally went through. The book of Jude was written to counterattack the inroads of apostasy and heresy within the churches. I'm amazed as I study the letters how many of them were written because of false teaching. False teaching. That's why they were written. Jude, 1 John, I mean, Colossians, Galatians. So many of the letters were written to counter false teaching. And Jude, woo, let me tell you something. Jude will, is going to blister the false teachers. He is going to excoriate them. He is, going, he is not out to win friends. He's going to let them have it. You remember I told you about 1 John punches you with a velvet glove? Jude takes the glove off and puts on a lead glove. Okay? Jude points to examples of defection from God in the Old Testament such as that of the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt, angelic beings during the days of Noah, and the well-known apostasy of Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentions all of those, and we're going to look at those because it's deep stuff, folks, and we need to understand it. it this stuff, when we get into it, it's going to blow your mind. It's really, really deep and powerful stuff. One commentator writes that Jude's style is broken and ragged, Bold and picturesque, energetic, vehement, glowing with the fires of passion. I kind of picture John. John would work great. As he, he would have fit right into some of our churches today by coming out wearing a Hawaiian shirt. I picture John this way. He was easygoing, laid back. He could have walked out with one of those Hawaiian shirts on and just taught you. If Jude walked in, he would blister you. He was a preacher. He was fiery, red hot. Jude stands alone among all other New Testament letters in its uniqueness. It doesn't have any parallels. Jude has no parallels. 
Nowhere else do we find presented so many strange phenomena or have so many curious questions raised. The ancient Christian teacher Origen said, Jude wrote an epistle consisting of few lines, but filled with the vigorous words of heavenly grace. It's only one chapter. You don't say Jude chapter two. You say Jude verse whatever. There is only one chapter, but it cooks. Amen. Jude's language is extremely stern toward heretics. He forcefully condemns the false teachers of his day. He denounces them. He threatens them rather than refuting them. He just basically says, turn or burn. He's, he's really rough. He closes out his letter with comfort to Christians by reminding them of their first duty, which was to build themselves up in the most holy faith and to wait patiently for the return of Christ. Amen. And that's what we ought to be doing, building ourselves up in the faith and waiting for the return of Christ. Although Jude's letter addresses conditions that existed in his time, the scope of the book covers conditions at the end of the gospel age, which I believe is our day, and thus has an appropriate position right smack dab in front of the book of Revelation. Jude, Revelation. Now, I just put together a little brief outline, and let's just go through it. And, and I'm going to do with this book what I did with First John. I'm going to go ahead and write a little booklet on it and get it out to you probably sometime towards the end of the uh, series. I'm not going to give it all to you now because I don't have it all now. But here we go. A brief outline. First two verses, the introduction, and that's what we're covering tonight. The reason for the letter. What is it, everybody? What's the reason? Apostasy. A turning from the truth. A turning from the faith once delivered to the saints. That's the way Jude phrases it. He says, you ought to, he's speaking to the believers, he says, you ought to be fighting earnestly, contending for the faith, the faith once delivered to the saints. All right? So there was an apostasy going on. And then he gives three historical examples of apostasy, verses five through seven. Let's read them together, can we? The apostasy of Israel, the apostasy of angels, and the apostasy of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's five, six, and seven. Then verses eight through 13, he describes false teachers. And man, is it, is it, uh, it leaves you word pictures that you never forget. And it's really powerful when you get to it. But now, then, the book goes on, verses 14 through 19. Let's read it together. Declarations of God's judgment of the wicked. I mean, when we get out of Jude, there's going to be no question that God is going to answer wickedness with judgment. There is a judgment coming. Don't ever let anyone tell you there's not. Jude, among others, and, and, and the closest thing to Jude, you'll notice, is Second Peter. Jude, the closest thing to it is Second Peter, but Jude is very unique. But like Peter... Jude's going to let us know beyond all doubt there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. And it's going to come on the wicked as surely as we sit here tonight. Then, verses 20 to 23, he brings encouragement of true believers and their full duty to Christ. And here's our duty. Edification and prayer in the Holy Spirit. Preservation in the love of God and expectation of divine mercy. And exhortation to what? Soul winning, 100 guitars of praise. Any way you can win souls. All believers are exhorted to be soul winners. Soul winners. 
Now, then he gives in verses 24 and 25 the conclusion, the benediction. All right, is everybody ready to begin in Jude? All right, verse 1. Let's read verse 1 together, can we? Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, loved by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. And by the way, when I read about James here, it's the book of James was written by this James. Before Pastor Jeff comes back to wrap things up for us today, I'd like to share a couple of important things with you. Let me encourage you to take a minute and check out our website, hardwired.org. You'll find today's program along with all of Pastor Jeff's messages. There's a growing list of great things to check out at the site. So hop on over and check it out, hardwired.org. That's hardwired.org. And be sure to tell your friends about the program. We know you're being blessed by it. I'm sure your friends will be as well. We're here to reach as many people for the Lord as we can. So getting the word out will help us on this mission. And that's what this program is all about. And Pastor Jeff's back now for the conclusion of today's program. The book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, James. And James was the what we would call today the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church, that first great church. That was James. And that's this James, okay? Now, let's talk about Jude's name for a minute. The author's name in Greek is Judas. This Judas was a brother of James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, and he's named among the brethren of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? This makes him a brother of the Lord Jesus in the family of Joseph and Mary. You'll notice when you look at Jude, the book of Jude, in humility, Jude shrinks from emphasizing a distinction to which none of the other disciples or apostles could have a claim. He doesn't strut that he's the half-brother of Jesus. And I'll tell you why I don't think that he does. Because they persecuted Jesus until the resurrection. They didn't even believe in him. They gave Jesus a hard time. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. They, they made fun of him and mocked him. You can find this in the book of John. So it's, it's sort of like, wow, you know, after all that trouble I gave him, I realized after he was resurrected that he was the son of God. And now what, what am I? I'm a bond servant. I'm a bond servant of my brother. That's so powerful to me. Servant is the Greek word doulos. And it, it means a bond slave. If you talked about a slave in the New Testament, you use the word doulos. Okay? He does not call himself an apostle, as do Paul and Peter in their introductions. In John's gospel, we are told in John 7, verse 5, can you read it with me? For even his own brothers did not believe in him, and Jude was among them. Jude was among them. And they stood outside a place where Jesus was teaching with Mary and made fun of him while he was on the inside teaching and performing miracles. So don't you know, he had to eat some warm crow when he finally got saved. Amen? It's one of the more powerful testimonies of the truth of Jesus as the Son of God that his own half-brothers, both James and Jude, called him the Christ. Wow. I read that. I started thinking about that. You know, he's either insane, Jesus, and what he said about himself, or he is the son of God. And if he's the son of God, 
can you just imagine the power of having grown up with him and then realizing, oh my, that's why he was never in trouble. That's why he never got whipped. That's why he was always straight-laced. He was the son of God. And to end up calling him my Lord and Christ and saying, I'm nothing but his doulos, his slave, that is one of the greatest testimonies to me of the reality of Jesus as the Son of God. He's just his humble bond slave following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the best Greek texts have the word agapao, or love, instead of sanctified. And so, and what I'm referring to there is when he says, those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, the best manuscripts, what we call extant manuscripts that we've got available to us today, don't use sanctify, they use love. So I'm just going to go to that and just say love. So the way it really reads is, to those who are called loved by God the Father, loved by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? So say with me, loved. loved. All right. Now, love is in the perfect tense, which speaks of a past act having permanent results. How many of you in here are married? All right. You remember when you said, I do, and you slipped that ring on your spouse's finger? Now, if we were using or referring to that, that time, your wedding, we would use the perfect tense because you put the ring on your spouse's finger, and that was an act that happened in the past. But how many of you that are married can say it's still having results today? Amen. You better say it. Not me, Pastor Jeff. I've outgrown it. Look, I, you got to get where I'm going now. I'm just trying to show you what the perfect tense is. So when the perfect tense is used in the Greek language, he's saying something happened back there, but it's still affecting you today. Now, love is in the perfect tense to those loved by God the Father. It means that we, the saints, are the permanent objects of God's love. He didn't love us back then and walk away. He loved us back then. And how many of you can say he's still loving me today? So that love impacted you back then, but it's still impacting you today. And guess what? It's forever. So we are the permanent objects of God's love, including throughout all eternity. All eternity. That's a long time. One trillion years from now, we're going to be going, wow, trillions of years ago, he loved me and it's still impacting me. He loves me still. He wants us to understand God's love is permanent. It's not a temporary, flighty thing. It's permanent. So Jude is writing to those who have been loved by God the Father and who are the objects of his eternal, undying love. Can we say, thank you, God? We're, we're recipients of eternal love. Praise God. And guess what? When you mess up, he doesn't say, well, it's been real. See you later and walk away. He loves you. He's got you written on the palm of his hand. You are tattooed on the palm of God's hand. He's never going to walk away from you. He's not ever going to forsake you. He can't because he just told us his love is forever. 
Hallelujah. Now, preserved, I like that word. How many of you like the word preserved? I love that word. Because he says now, he says to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. All right? It's the word tereo. And here's what it means. To guard, to hold firmly, to watch, or to keep. It expresses possession of what is being guarded. When he uses the word preserve, he says, God is not only guarding you, but you are his possession, and that's why he's guarding you. You are God's possession. You were purchased, not with American dollars, not with Chinese yen, not any of those things. You were purchased with the only currency that could buy you, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And now that that blood purchased you and ransomed you, you are his possession, and he's guarding his owned possession. He's preserving you. And what I like about I just love the perfect tense in the Greek because it's Preserved is also in the perfect tense, meaning that we are in God the Father's permanent watchful care. Like a parent carefully watches his or her children in a crowded store. God never lets us out of his sight. He's watching you day and night. He has insomnia. When you go to sleep, he doesn't. When you wake up in the morning, he's watched you all night long. He is watching over you and guarding you because you're his bought, purchased possession. Now, when I read that, it says this to me. There must be something after us or he wouldn't be having to guard us. And that is the enemy of our soul. He's always looking for a way to get at us. But God says, I'm guarding you because I bought you. I'm guarding you, watching over you. My eyes peeled on you. You're never out of my sight, never out of my care. I'm watching you. That's comforting. In Jesus Christ. Now, look what it says. You are preserved in Jesus Christ. That means that God is keeping us guarded for Jesus Christ. Do you know that a lot of what happens to you in your Christian lives, as a matter of fact, just about everything God does for you, he does it because of Jesus. He does it because of Jesus. Say, well, doesn't he love me? Yes, he loves you and he loves me. But he's honoring what the son did, his death, his resurrection, giving his life. So when God answers your prayer, he does it for Jesus. When God heals you, he does it for Jesus. When God gives you wisdom, he does it for Jesus. When he guides you along the way, he does it for Jesus. That's what he's telling us right here. You are preserved, not in, but for Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus prayed in John 17, 11. Can we read it together? Holy Father, guard them, guard them. As they pursue this life that you conferred as a gift, how? Through me, so they can be one heart and mine. Now, how many of you think that Jesus ever prayed a prayer that God did not answer? No. He, every prayer he prayed, he got it because he prayed according to the will of God, being God. And so Jesus right here prays, Father, guard them, guard them. Now I have given them the life that you sent me to give them. Now guard them. You know what God said? Yea and amen through Jesus Christ. And so why does God guard us? He's answering Jesus' prayer. So it's not dependent on our perfection. It's dependent on the prayer of Jesus. So he's guarding you in answer to Jesus' prayer. Amen. 
Jesus committed, we Christians, into the watchful care of God the Father. And he in turn is keeping and guarding us that we might forever be the possession of the Lord Jesus. Now the word called, that's the first word in the verse. Let me just read it again quickly. He says, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. I want to deal with called last, because I love this word. How many of you believe you're called? Amen? How many of you believe you're called? Now, what does it mean when he says called? It's from a Greek word meaning to be invited as to a banquet. You've been listening to Hardwired with Pastor Jeff Wickwire. It would mean the world to us to know how the program has helped you today. So take a quick minute and give us a call, 877-884-3111. Or you can connect with us at our website, hardwired.org. And if you enjoy the program as much as we love bringing it to you, let us know by your generous support. It would really mean a lot to us. There are daily costs associated with the program, and we truly do depend on the faithful financial support of our listeners like you to allow us to be on this station. So please, consider partnering with us today with your gifts to this ministry. You can call us at 877-884-3111 or go to the website hardwired.org. Again, call 877-884-3111 or at our website hardwired.org. Thank you for your loyal partnership as we couldn't do this without you. And finally, Pastor Jeff is the founder and senior pastor of the vibrant Turning Point Church in Fort Worth, Texas. If you're ever in the area, we hope you'll stop by and say hi. Let us know that you listen to the program. That would really make our day. And Pastor Jeff would love to meet you personally, too. So till next time, have a great day. And thanks so much for listening to Hardwired.